Welcome to Renew again. Yeah. yeah. So as you heard from our, as I call them, our resident theologians, we are talking about uh, Rahab. So I invite you to turn to Hebrews 11, 1 through 3, and then verse 31, and then uh, turn over to Joshua 2. And if you're able to stand for the reading of God's word, I invite you to join me as we read the story of Rahab. So Hebrews 11, 1 through 3, and then verse 31, and then we'll turn back to the Old Testament to Joshua 2. Hebrews 11, verse 1 reads, Faith shows the reality of what we hope for. It is the evidence of things we cannot see. Through their faith, the people in the days of old earned a good reputation. By faith, we understand that the entire universe was formed at God's command, that what we now see did not come from anything that can be seen. It was by faith that Rahab, the prostitute, was not destroyed with the people in her city who refused to obey God, for she had given a friendly welcome to the spies. And then Joshua 2. Joshua 2 verse 1 reads, Then Joshua secretly sent out two spies from the Israelite camp at Acacia Grove. He instructed them, scout out the land on the other side of the Jordan River, especially around Jericho. So the two men sent out and came to the house of a prostitute named Rahab and stayed there that night. But someone told the king of Jericho, some Israelites have come here tonight, spy out the land. So the king of Jericho sent orders to Rahab, bring out the men who have come into the house, for they have come here to spy out the whole land. Rahab had hidden the two men, but she replied, Yes, the men were here earlier, but I don't know where they were from. They left the town at dusk as the gates were about to close. I don't know where they went. If you hurry, you can probably catch up with them. Actually, she had taken them up to the roof and hidden them beneath the bundles of flax she had laid out. So the king's men went looking for the spies along the road leading to the shallow crossing of the Jordan River. And as soon as the king's men had left, the gate of Jericho was shut. Before the spies went to sleep that night, Rahab went up to the roof to talk with them. I know the Lord has given you this land, she told them. We are all afraid of you. Everyone in the land is living in terror, for we have heard how the Lord made a dry path for you through the Red Sea when you left Egypt. And we know that what you did in Shan and Gog, the two Ammonite kings east of the Jordan River, whose people you completely destroyed. No wonder our hearts have melted in fear. No one has the courage to fight after hearing such things. For the Lord your God is the supreme God of the heavens above and the earth below. Now swear to me by the Lord that you will be kind to me and my family since I have helped you. Give me some guarantee that when Jericho is conquered, you will let me live along with my father and mother, my brothers and sisters and all their families. We offer our lives as a guarantee for your safety, the men agreed. If you don't betray us, we will keep our promise and be kind to you when the Lord gives us the land. Then since Rahab's house was built into the town wall, she let them down by a rope through the window. Escape to the hill country, she told them. Hide there for three days from the men searching for you. Then when they have returned, you can go on your way. Before they left, the men told her, we will be bound by the oath we have taken only if you follow these instructions. When we come into the land, you must leave this scarlet rope hanging from the window through which you let us down. And all your family members, your father, your mother, your brothers, and all your relatives must be here inside the house. If they go out into the street and are killed, it will not be our fault. But if anyone lays a hand on people inside the house, we will accept the responsibility for their death. If you betray us, however, we are not bound by this oath in any way. 
I accept your terms, she replied. And she sent them on their way, leaving the scarlet rope hanging from the window. The spies went up into the hill country and stayed there for th- there three days. The men who were chasing them searched everywhere along the road, but they finally returned without success. Then the two spies came down from the hill country, crossed the Jordan River, and reported to Joshua all that had happened to them. The Lord has given us this whole land, they said, for all the people in the land are terrified of us. Let's pray. God in heaven, thank you for this time for us to be together. Thank you for your word, and thank you, Holy Spirit, for illuminate the scripture for our understanding, Lord. And Lord, thank you again for camp, and thank you for the blessing that that was, and for the students and leaders, Lord. And just thank you for who you are and what you're doing in and through our lives here at Renew and all the churches and in your kingdom, Lord. We just praise you for that and thank you. Thank you most of all for your son. So Lord, prepare our hearts to receive your word. Whatever you want me to say, I say whatever you don't, don't. And we'll be careful to give you the glory in Christ's name. Amen. You may have a seat. As we continue our series in Hebrews 11, and as you know by now, it's entitled The Good, the Bad, and the Ugly, we see now the first person recorded, at least for us, that the Israelites encounter once they're in the promised land. It's the first person they run into, Rahab. And uh, every couple of weeks, my hope is to just do a quick one word or a a verse, uh, a statement of each character that we've covered, uh, just so that way we can catch up. So if you were here or if you weren't, uh, we started with Abel. And, and the phrase that I wrote down for Abel is specifically about his faith, is faith brings to God. And we learned that Abel brought his best to God. Then Enoch, faith walks with God. And Noah, faith fears God. Abraham, faith obeys God. Sarah, faith receives from God. And Isaac, faith submits to God. And for Jacob, faith worships God. And Joseph, faith hopes in God. And Joshua from last week, faith is courageous in God. And then this morning, Rahab, I wrote down, Faith responds to God. It responds to God. So this morning, there's really, for me, as I was going through this specifically for Rahab and just revisiting, just going through Hebrews 11 again, just two main focuses, and then we'll end with the scarlet rope, and we'll discuss that for our communion time. But the two main parts that really stood out to me with Rahab is, the first one is, faith is not measured by your past sins. Faith is not measured by your past sins. Or in other words, your past is not your identity in Christ. And then the second one is faith responds in action to God. And really, as I was going through this, I I was just taken back by the reality of who Rahab was and who she was at this time. And it got me to start to think about faith just in general. Of course, that's why the whole purpose of the series is to see the good, the bad, the ugly in our faith. God is always good, but of course, we can muck it up, but yet he's still faithful. 
And what I was considering is about my own faith and what I do with my faith and, and walking along and then with you. And I know many of you, if not most of your stories of faith and walking with faith. And some of you are still on the cusp of coming to faith. And I would say that I was thinking that faith is not a trophy that we keep at home or a certificate we hide in a drawer. Faith is more like a badge, a badge that we wear every day or should wear every day. And sometimes that badge of faith is shiny and clean and pressed and in front and it's obvious that it's, we're doing well. And in other days, many other days, sometimes that badge of faith is tattered, it's ripped, smudged. But yet the key to wearing our faith and living out our faith is not to hide it at home. And, and I think for many of us, it could be so easy for us to hide our faith, especially if we feel that we're not where we should be, where we used to be, or we're so concerned of our past sins. And hopefully this morning again, uh, Rahab, by the grace of God, we will see that our faith does not need to be perfect, but Christ is perfect. So sometimes when we are speaking fondly of people, we sometimes mention what a great family they come from. You may make comments like this, they come from a really good stock. Their great-grandfather was a pillar of the community. And it's not bad. Usually those comments are to justify why a particular person can be trusted or be hired or why they should marry your son or daughter. Um, it's not bad. But then what if someone comes from a less savory background? You know, I, this, those comments, they come from a good stock. No, I didn't. Their great-grandfather was a pillar in the community. <laughs> no, he was not. And I was just considering this, and when I was considering this, this thought, this, I remember a conversation I heard, I think it was a couple, two months ago, standing in a grocery store, and there was these two ladies, and they were older, and I'm not going to tell you how older, because every time I say age and say older, Mark yells at me, so just kidding. <laughs> But they, they were old enough to have great-grandchildren, let's say that. And as they were talking, they were just sharing. It was clear, um, be careful if you see me in a grocery store, just run away, you might end up in a sermon. So I'm just kidding. But the, it was clear they hadn't seen someone, seen each other for a long time, and they were having a conversation, or at least that's what it was, and they were just sharing how everyone in the family was going, and they were just so excited. And then they were talking about their grandchildren and their in-laws and how they were excited that their great-grandchild is about to get married. And then they said, well, who is who's that family? And then they were talking about all the great things his family did. And then this one lady said, but you know, his grandfather was a drunk. And I found it curious. Why would you whisper? Is he here? Like, <laughs> where is grandpa? Like, but you know, it's almost like my great grandson is going to marry a girl that her grandfather is a drunk. That's a stain. And I have to whisper it because I'm ashamed. It's interesting that sometimes we can use the background of ourselves or the background of other people and we look at it with so much shame. And really, shame was dealt with on the cross. Completely dealt with. 
Now, if you're convicted, that's completely different. If you're living in sin, if you're doing something you're not supposed to be doing, if you're a follower of Christ, that's the Holy Spirit. He's working and saying, hey, hey, hey. But to, to look back on our lives or look back in the lives of someone who, who has accepted Christ, I don't know, obviously, this conversation with the ladies where they stood, but sometimes we're still ashamed of past sins that were forgiven. It's a black mark on the family tree, if you will. But really, if you think about it, Rahab represents the wickedness of this fortified city. Not only was she a participant of the Ammonites, the Ammonites are the ones who, who were locked in Jericho, and we talked last week how Joshua and the walls came tumbling down, but she was a participant in the Amorites. And the Amorites were top 10 wicked people in the history of mankind. The things that they did sexually, the things that they did to their children, the things that they did to animals. Um, and I'm not just talking about sexually, I'm just talking about murder and burning the children so that way they can appease the moon god that they believed in, the sun god, the water god. Just was grotesque. And the way that they treated people who came into their city that wasn't an Ammonite was awful too. Slavery and butchery, and it was awful. So not only is Rahab a participant in this, but she personally profited from the evil that the whole society lived in. She had personally profited from the evil that was just permeated throughout the whole society. We are told that she is a prostitute uh, or a harlot. And what I found interesting is some scholars some modern scholars attempt to call her an innkeeper instead of a prostitute in an attempt to explain away the less beautiful things of the Bible. As if, if you just call her an innkeeper, it's less disgusting that God would ever use someone like that. No, that word in Hebrew means prostitute. It does technically mean innkeeper, but if you put those together, it actually means she ran a brothel. That's what she did. And she made a lot of money, and we can assume that she made a lot of money for two reasons. One, her home was on the wall. That was prime real estate, right? The second one is, is and we'll get there in a little bit, when she hid the men, she, on the top of the roof, she hid them behind the flax, bundles of flax. And you could only afford to do that. What they would do is they would get all wet, these long bushels of flax, and they'd dry them out, and then that's where they had thread and various things. So she had a very successful business in that. So she was making money off the sins of this nation. And when I, and I, when I was reading through and some of the commentaries were trying to, to minimize it, I, I think... Um, that's a shame. It, it's limiting God's grace if you try to minimize your sin. Sin leads to death. All sin. And it wasn't that um, as she was working through it, it's not as if she didn't know better. This was just her community, and she was a prostitute, and again, probably ran a house of repute. And what we see here is God still uses her. Granted, again, that, that Hebrew word means harlot and innkeeper. So she was running this place and she was in control and she was making lots of money. 
And, and it's not as if Rahab did not uh, have this back alley town where, or a place where it was hidden. This was out in the open. This was the high rent business district. This was the town square. And if you are able to sin in public, that means the public has accepted sin as the norm. And we see that more and more in the world. And thank you, Darren, for the reminder that there is hope in Christ and of the students. I should X that out. But yet she is specifically signaled out in Hebrews 11 as for the greatness in her faith, a hero of the faith, because as verse 31 of Hebrews 11 says, it was by faith that Rahab, the prostitute, was not destroyed with the people in her city who refused to obey God, for she had given a friendly welcome to the spies. Again, the Bible doesn't pretend she was never a prostitute. Instead, it focuses on the saving grace of God. There's no whispering in the grocery store. It's out in the open. So much so that she even again appears in the genealogy of Christ in Matthew 1. She's the great-great-grandmother of King David. And she is in the line that led to Christ. See, after all the events that take place in Joshua... After the wall comes down, again, which we covered last week, she marries a man named Salmon, who is the father of Boaz. And then Boaz marries Ruth. And Boaz and Ruth has Obed. And Obed has a son named Jesse. And then Jesse has a son named David. And we know him as King David. And then 14 generations later, Joseph and Mary have Jesus Christ. That's extraordinary that doesn't even cover it. Rahab, Jesus' great, great, I guess you can count 17 generations back, wasn't a drunk. His great, great grandmother was a prostitute. But again, faith is not measured by your past sins. So let's take a look at this quickly. Rahab is the very first person the scripture introduced us to in the promised land. And by God's grace, she would become one of the key leading uh, factors into this triumph. Her whole life, her whole career, her whole future would change by a surprise visit of two spies. So as we look back at Joshua 2, Joshua secretly, I want you to notice, secretly in verse 1, sends out two spies to the Israelite camp. From the Israelite camp, again, not, not... He's not going to have the same issue that Moses had about 38 years ago, roughly 40 years ago. You remember, again, I I think I mentioned this last week, he sent out 12 spies, Moses did, and 10 said, there's no way, they're huge, they're giant, we can't do it. But two of the spies said, oh yeah, we could do it. We have God on our side, no problem. And of course, one of the spies was Joshua. He was a spy, and his buddy Caleb See, the spies, and, and here's a quick note, just, just I found interesting as I was studying this. A quick note, the, the spies were sent out in secret because Joshua knew that if he sent out more or if it was a public thing, everybody would want to come and see what happened, and then everyone would want to cast their vote on whether or not they could do it or not. That was not the point of the spies. The spies was not whether or not they could take Jericho. God had already promised it. The 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 reason the spies were sent out is how they were going to do that. It's easy to be called to do something, and our response is to see if it can really be done. 
we study and we look into the calling and we really want to figure out, is this a real calling? Does this really make sense? Can we do this? Is this what God's really calling us to do? And we can so easily spend time putting a plan together and investigate that we never actually do what God has asked us to do. I have a friend that he was a church planner and he felt called to be a church planner and uh, he has been waiting to be a church planner for 38 years when the time is right, when the iron is hot, I'm going to do it. Still waiting. If you're waiting for the perfect condition, it's never going to come. So essentially, Joshua, in secret, sends out two spies, again, not to see if what God said is true, but to see how they could do it. And when we face a situation, good, bad, and different, really there's two main things that we can add to the situation, I've noticed. One is we can either add fear to the situation or faith to the situation. We can, we can be fearful. There's no way absolutely no way. And then maybe we'll circle around and say yes. Or faith, yes. I have faith in this situation. Let's see how we can do it. Let's investigate, but let's make progress for it. Now, realistically, there's way more things we can introduce, of course, and even more realistic than that. I don't know if there's ever been a big decision I made where it was 100% fear or 100% faith. It's more like faith, fear, faith, fear, faith, fear, faith, fear, lots of fear, lots of fear, lots of fear, faith, faith, faith. Then something happens, fear, 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 fear. Faith, 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 right? You know, like, if you look at my life, it's like this. I know most of you are, uh, but me, I would be the grandpa that you would, he's a drunk. I'm not a drunk, but you get what it is. You should see his faith meter, right? But that's really what it, sometimes it starts off, we add faith to it, and then we go back, and we feel like God is calling us to go across the street and talk to our neighbor about Jesus, but then we have to feel like we need to do some renaissance, 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 whatever, investigate, uh, our neighbors to go talk to them, see what they like, see what kind of food they like, invite them over, never get around to talk about Jesus, maybe next time, find out what dessert they like, maybe help them with their car, cut the grass. You know, you've lived across the street 12 years later if you never actually talked about Jesus with them, but you're going to. But really, it's lots of fear, lots of fear. What happens if they don't like me? What happens? What happens? What happens? And of course, there's a more and more, that's just one example. But if we remember, perfect love casts out all fear, and perfect love comes from Christ. And I think, at least for me, and I would suggest for us, we don't want to do something unless we know we're going to be successful. We don't want to send out our spies unless they come back with a good report. We don't want to step out in faith and it not show any fruit immediately because what will people think? So Joshua, in his experience as a spy, as being two of 12 that said, yes, we could do it, sent them out in secret. And then immediately they run into Rahab. So really the question is, is will you trust God before the big reveal? Last week, will you trust God in the waiting? But will you trust God in the big reveal? Can you imagine what it was like for Joshua to send two spies and just wait? Like I would pace, when are they going to come back? When are they going to come back? When are they going to come back? And why would you need to send out two spies if you have faith? Because you want to be sure of what is going on. So the two spies are sent out. And perhaps the next question is, is why would the spies first stop be a prostitute's house? 
It would be a good uh, play to avoid detection. Strangers all the time coming in and out of the gate would go to a prostitute's house. That wouldn't be weird. That wouldn't be suspicious, especially if they would go in and they would leave, leave and gather information. It was also on the wall, provide a good escape route. We discussed how high the double-walled um, the walls were. There was two walls. So it just made complete sense to do that. So Joshua wasn't asking them um, just to go out and see if God really meant it. He was asking them, this is what God said. Let's see how we could do it. So they run into Rahab at a prostitute shop. And somewhere along the line, if, if this is a novel for you, if you picture things in the movie, they show up to the house. They're probably greeted. What can we do for you? Let's take you to a room. And then they're trying to figure out what's going on. Somewhere along the line, someone overhears the conversation. Someone recognizes them, understands that they're Israelites. Some people suggest they could tell by their garb. But I'm assuming if you're a spy, probably not a ninja spy wearing all black, but you are dressed up like someone that would fit in. Someone finds out and runs back to the king to tell the king. The king gets word and pick up at verse 4. Rahab had hidden the two men, but she replied when the, or excuse me, verse 3. So the king of Jericho sent orders to Rahab, bring out the men who have come into the house, for they have come to spy out the whole land. Rahab had hidden the two men, but she replied, yes, the men were here earlier, but I didn't know where they were from. They left the town at dusk as the gates were about to close. I don't actually know where they went. Liar. If you hurry, you can probably catch up with them. Liar. You know, we'll discuss her lying in a moment. So the king's men went looking for the spies along the road leading to the shallow crossing of the Jordan River. And as soon as the king's men had left, the gate of Jericho was shut. So the question is, is did she just simply believe in the message of God? in God to avoid death and destruction? Like, is she just making a deal with the spies because she wants to get out of it? But all of us who believe in Christ, don't we want to avoid death, the spiritual death? I mean, this, is, this makes sense. This is, this is what she's going to do. And what I really appreciate from Rahab is her immediate response to her newfound faith. It was sloppy, it wasn't perfect, but she was faithful. So why would she do this? Why would she hide the spies? There probably wasn't a long conversation. We're not told how long the conversation was. We're not even told if the spies went to speak to Rahab. They were just supposed to do some renaissance, whatever. I can't say that word. I'm going to stop. Thank you. Reconnaissance. Yes, there's that letter. Thank you. <clears throat> Michael, you want to just come up and help me? I'm just kidding. Oh, come on, Riley. Thanks. All right. You get, you get the point. They, they go in. We, we're not told much. All we know is that she saw a conflict. We saw Rahab see a conflict. She saw the contrast of her life, the life of Jericho, the life that she had lived, the life that this entire town was living in. And then she saw the contrast of the one true God. And she knew she had to make a choice. She had to pick a side. And that is presented to each and every one of us. We have to pick a side. And I love the, the simplicity and the encouragement of her faith. The simplicity of her faith. You don't have to have a vast knowledge before you believe. You don't have to understand everything before you believe. But think about it. She was very limited. There was no preacher that came to town. There was no prophet, no Bible study, no ladies' Bible study. There was no Bible. 
No Christian friends. There's no Christians at the time. This is the Old Testament. She had no Jewish friends. She had no knowledge of the, of the Lord via that way. She says that I know that the Lord has given you this land. The Lord in, in some print, not the NLT, but the NIV, New King James, ESV, the other ones probably in your Bible, it says Lord, capital L, capital O, capital R, capital D. That means Yahweh. Anytime you see the Lord and capitalize, it's Yahweh. It means I am who I am, the introduction that God gives Moses. I am the God of the universe. And she actually calls the Lord, calls God Lord of the universe four times. Verse 9, 10, 11, and 12, just quickly. Verse 9, I know Yahweh has given you this land, she told him. And here's the key. We are all afraid of you. Everyone in this land is living in terror. So it's not that she has this secret knowledge. The entire city of Jericho knows about God. See that? We, in verse 9, and everyone in this land is living in terror. For we have heard how the Lord, Yahweh, made a dry path for you through the Red Sea. That happened 40 years ago when you left Egypt. And we know that what you did in Shion and Og and the two Amorite kings east of the Jordan River, whose people you completely destroyed. No wonder our hearts have melted in fear. No one has the courage to fight after hearing such things. For the Lord, Yahweh, your God, is the supreme God of the heavens above and the earth below. No Bible study no preacher preaching, God revealing himself, and he does it. God is faithful to reveal himself. And some people respond in terror and fear, which I would suggest today in the modern people just reject. Rejection of God, I would suggest, is a form of fear. I don't want nothing to do with God. I'm actually really terrified with him, but if I ignore him, if I dismiss him, if I just pretend he's not there, if I make fun of him, if I make fun of believers, if I reject him, it's a form of terror. But for her, she understands who he is. And that last part of verse 11, for Yahweh, your God, is the supreme God, that means the creator of the universe, of the heavens above and the earth below. So she has seen what God has done and chose to follow and accept him. She is part of a family, a group of people, the Amorites who I mentioned, who are wicked. And roughly for 400 years, four generations of wickedness. In Genesis 5, it talks about, um, God says through Moses, for the sin of the Amorites have not reached the full measure. So, so this is now the full measure of sin. See, God is very merciful, and he allows time for people to come to know him. And out of all the Amorites in the city, the only people who are saved is Rahab and all of her family. And But notice here, when they make this guarantee, in verse 13, when Jericho is conquered, you will let me live along with my father and mother and my brothers and sisters and all their families but you notice what they will do, what, they, what the spies agree to, as long as they come in. They don't get a free pass just because you believe. 
They too must come in. Now, can you imagine before the whole scene happens that she goes to the different homes of her brothers and sisters? Can you imagine this? This pagan, wicked city? All right, there's going to be a day when the Israelites come. You have to come into my home or you'll be destroyed. Yeah, right. You're a prostitute. You're wicked. We're wicked. Can you imagine that conversation? Just imagine the conversation you have to have with your family and friends who are not believers. It's the same conversation. You're not getting a free pass just because I believe. You need to come in, into the fold. That's what she's saying. So she invites them in because God is going to deal with their wickedness. I just, I just see that whole scene play out in my eyes. The, the, the time running and knocking on the door, you got to come in. I don't know when it's when is it going to happen. Why? And because she, she said everyone and we are all afraid, so they're also afraid. There's a way out. You'll be safe. Come. One commentator wrote: Faith rests on who God is, what He has done, and not simply what He will do. But He's faithful. Hebrews point out: By faith she did not perish, because of her genuine faith that she welcomed, she gave a friendly welcome to spies. The strength of her faith was shown in her depth of her commitment. And that's really what we see in faith. Faith believes that God reveals what God has promised. And she, is, she protects them in faith before the guarantee of the safety. Notice that? She hides them on the roof ever before they make an oath. They don't actually make an oath yet until after those guards leave. So again... First part, faith is not measured by our past sins, but faith responds in action to God. That's why in James chapter 2, verse 25 and 26, we read that Rahab the prostitute is another example, talking about faith. She was shown to be right or justified with God by her actions when she hid those messengers and sent them safely away by a different road. Just as the body is dead without breath, so also faith is dead without good works. Rahab was not justified by works, but in the sense of what Paul says, because Paul says we are justified by grace. Now James is saying we're justified by works. It sounds like a contrast, but it's not. What's going on here is, is key. Paul and James both are saying justified in two different ways, but Paul is talking about the declaration by which God makes us right in him. And James is talking about the demonstration of our faith. Uh, James also talks about hear the word, do the word. You can't only be hearers of the words, but must be produced in action. It's like riding a bike. Go home today. Well, it's going to be like 100 million degrees, but go home today and try to ride your bike with one leg. Well, first of all, that's ridiculous. But you must hear the word and do the word. Hear the word and do the word. Hear what God is saying Respond. And you're not responding so you're saved. You're responding because you are saved. You, you, are, you are fulfilling, and that, you, you are fulfilling uh, the response in your heart because God has saved you. Again, we don't earn our salvation. We respond to the salvation in faith, in action. And that is exactly what she did. And there is a God, and you have to respond to that. And God's grace covers our sins. That's what we see in Rahab. 
real, actual sins, not some imaginary tell, not some sins on the list, the sins. Now, if we consider that, I think I would be, it would be a shame if I didn't cover the fact that she lied. I know that some people here would, are, may really are struggling with the fact that she lied. Is it okay to lie? No, it is not okay to lie. First, I think it's easy to get wrapped up in faith that is not perfect. I think when we read stories or we see other people, deep down inside, we kind of anticipate a perfect view of faith in someone's life if it's going to be in the Bible. And that's wrong. That's, that's completely wrong. But she did lie. Was that wrong? Yep. Again, it is simple faith. It's not perfect faith. It's easy, again, for us to go to extreme one or another. How could she possibly lie? It's, it's one thing that just, how could that possibly, why, why didn't she just tell them where it was and God supernaturally telebeamed them somewhere else? Why would she have to lie? But notice that in Hebrews and in James, it does not commend her for lying, but being faithful. The second one that you'll notice is all throughout the Bible, the times that someone lied during a battle, during oppression of a king or a government, you will see that God uses that because God uses sinners. Look at Moses. Moses would have been killed by the baby if the ladies who found him on the river didn't lie about it. King David would have died if his wife didn't lie to her father, Saul. Same with his son, Jonathan. I mean, we can even more modernize it, hiding Jewish people in the Holocaust. This is not a license to lie. It's a respond to faith in God. And she lied. So is it perfect faith? Nope. But is it faith? Absolutely. So she lied, and then she made a deal. And then again, that, that deal that she makes with them is a covenant that they make. In verse 17, it reads, Before they left, the men told her, We will be bound by the oath that we have taken only if you follow these instructions. When we come into the land, you must leave this scarlet rope hanging from the window through which you let us down. And all your family members and your father and your mother and your brothers and relatives must all be here inside of the house. If they go in the street and are killed, it will not be our fault. But if anyone lays a hand on the people inside the house, we will accept the responsibility for their death. They're essentially saying, if anyone is harmed, we will be put to death. If you betray us, however, we are not bound by this oath in this way. And she says, I accept your terms. The word oath in Hebrew is the same word that God uses to make a covenant with Abraham. It's a blood oath. It's a trading off. If I don't hold up my end of the bargain, let me die. Again, that blood oath is cutting an animal in half, spreading it apart. We both walk through it. And the blood on our robes, let anything, if I, dis, if I break the vow that I make, what we did to the animal, let that happen to me. And that is the vow that they're promising to her. And she says, I accept your terms. So simple. I believe. And again, I think it's so, we see this lady that we would describe and not went over for dinner and feel uncomfortable with or will whisper in the store. And yet, God used her not only to save the spies, to help usher in the Israelites to take over the stronghold, but eventually later on down the bloodline to be the great, 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 great 
grandmother of Christ. This morning we will receive communion together. You are invited uh, to join us in participating in communion. The only qualification is you must be a believer in Jesus Christ. But I want to, and as we prepare our hearts, we'll sing a couple songs in a moment. I, I, I want to point out something that, that's so fascinating here. If you go to verse 18, as you start to consider communion, receiving the Lord's Supper, in verse 18, what the s- spies tell her to do, when we come into the land, we must, l- excuse me, you must leave this scarlet rope hanging from the window through which you let us down. It's called the scarlet rope or the scarlet thread throughout the Bible. It, it's, it's, the, it's the interaction that we see of God and his people called the scarlet rope and how his story of redemption and salvation is interwoven throughout the Old and New Testament. We first see it when after Adam and Eve have sinned in the garden, and you remember they sewed some fig leaves together because they were ashamed of their nakedness. And after God has a conversation with them, what's the first thing he does in response to their sin? He kills, he sacrifices an animal to cover them up. That's the first time that we see a sacrifice take place, a blood sacrifice take place, a scarlet sacrifice takes place. So in the Hebrew, this scarlet, this crimson word uh, is shin, nun, yod. It's three letters in the Hebrew. And it both means the color, the scarlet, but it also means worm. And shen, the first part, is the one letter God uses to identify himself. It's like his signature, if you will. It means he is able to create, consume, destroy, and press. He is Alpha Omega. And then noon, the next letter in the scarlet, noon is the letter for an act of life, and yod is the letter that means a mighty deed or a deed is accomplished. So God's signature in the word scarlet is on a mighty work that will bring life through the scarlet letter, through the crushing of his son. See, also in Hebrew, if you want to study more Hebrew, each letter is represented by a number. And Shin is represented by 300, which signifies the final blood sacrifice. 300 was considered, once you sacrifice 300, it's considered a lifetime of sacrifices. It's a final sacrifice. Who is the final sacrifice? Jesus Christ. Noon represents 50. 50 is... 50 and 70 is always in a number pointing to the number of times God supplies grace. That's why when Peter says, how many times should I forgive my brother? Seven times seven or 70 times 77, depending how you translate it. Another way is the perfect number of 50. And Yod is 10, something ordained from heaven. So as we see this scarlet rope, actually what, what is actually taking place is this scarlet rope would have been dyed red by these worms. And these worms are called tola, which is the same word for scarlet. And when these worms are pressed, their color of their blood is crimson red. I actually have a picture, I think, here of these worms. They look pretty gross, so it's almost lunchtime. 
maybe. Well, I'll keep talking until they come up. There it is. Yummy, okay? So these worms, you see that color? What they would do is when they became a full adult, the female larva would, or female worm would lay its larva onto an oak tree. And what would happen is then when the mom worm dies, her blood would be poured out onto a tree and cover her babies. And over time, the same oak tree would have it. And what she would do is, is her blood would be the protective covering over her larva. And after three days, she was completely gone, and that blood would have washed her larva as white as snow. You see what's going on here? See, this, these same worms, the Tola worm, is the same worms that they use to dye the temple veil, the temple garments, the priest garments, the belt of Moses. See, specifically, she, the, the worm attaches her body onto the wood and makes a hard crimson shell, and the crimson word would then lay it, her eggs, and her body has a protective shell, and the baby worms or larvae would hatch, and they would stay under the shell. And not only does the mother's body give protection for her babies, but it also provides them with food. And the babies are feeding off the living body. And when the mother dies, the crimson stain is left on the wood. That's why when we read in Isaiah 1, 18, Isaiah says, Come now, let us settle this, says the Lord. Though your sins are like scarlet, I will make them white as snow. Though they are red like crimson, I will make them as white as wool. And you, and you can go down this rabbit trail too. Psalm 22, when David says, I am a worm, he's saying, I am a rotten worm that I need your blood. It's the same thing when, when Jesus is on the cross and he calls out that it is finished. It is finished through my blood. So over and over again, we see this scarlet rope, this this. Even at the beginning of creation, when God created this red worm that's still in Israel, they used to dye various, uh, the Jewish people used th those temple garments. He knew that he would, when Jesus was here, he would always point to his creation to show the work that he was doing. So all that to say is this is where we see the scarlet rope, the blood of Christ, the same as the Passover, when the blood of the lamb, as the Passover in, in the Exodus, going into Exodus, that God is real, that he has a plan, that his blood, his body cost us, cost him everything for the forgiveness of our sins. So this morning, uh, the question is for us as we prepare our hearts to receive communion is, are you allowing your past sins to be your identity? Is your faith measured by your past sins? Don't allow it. This, this scarlet red rope is available to you, for you. And those who are believers in Christ, faith responds in action, and that's exactly what Rahab had done. She responded to the grace of God that was shown to her. Not a trophy that we keep at home or a certificate we hide in a drawer. Faith is a badge that we wear every day, shiny, tattered, or not. Hear the word. Do the word. Respond. It doesn't have to be perfect faith. It never will. It just has to be faith. You just have to be faithful. God has it covered. So let's pray. 
God, thank you for this time and your word, and thank you for this opportunity to come and worship you, Lord. And Lord, we just see this scarlet red rope, and this, this thread of, of you throughout history, again and again, leading up to your son coming here to die for our sins, Lord. And Lord, as we sing a couple more songs to you, as we prepare our hearts to receive communion, speak to us, Lord. Lord, will you help us first for the sins that we haven't dealt with, Lord? Will you just reveal them to us? Let us be faithful to confess them, Lord. Lord, and also in our faith, Lord, our faith is not perfect, Lord. Will you help us get over the fact that we won't be perfect, that we don't have to hide, Lord, that we don't have to be a whisper? No, we're not proud of our sin, but we are, are thankful and grateful that your blood covers them, what makes us white as snow, Lord. Lord, thank you for the examples of Rahab who would come from a background that no one would ever say, yes, she would be one, one of your chosen one, one of the followers of you, and yet she is. Let that give us hope that no one is so far away that your grace can't reach them. And Lord, we just thank you for who you are. And as we sing a couple more songs again, prepare our hearts to receive communion. We love you. In Christ's name, amen.